Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 24, 2015. In our general news section today, I'll talk about the Republican House and Senate budget resolutions that were released last week. I'll tell you about how the two proposals differ and where they share common ground. I'll also talk about what they could mean for the future of tax reform. In other general news, I'll share information about how you can submit your comments on what guidance the Internal Revenue Service should prioritize in 2015 and 16. In our affordable housing section, I'll discuss a memorandum from the IRS that clarifies the treatment of units that are set aside for manager and maintenance personnel in a low-income housing tax credit property. Then, I'll talk about a bill that could increase financing for energy-efficient updates in government-subsidized housing. After that, I'll share a report about rental cost burdens on working families and how the low-income housing tax credit is helping to address the affordability crisis. In new market tax credit news, I'll discuss a report that examines how the new market's tax credit could better serve minority and women entrepreneurs. Then, in our historic tax credit section, I have two state-level news items, one from Georgia, where a bill to expand the state historic tax credit has been passed by the Georgia House Representatives. The other is a bill from Alabama that could make the state historic and new markets tax credit programs less, that's right, less attractive to investors. Finally, we'll close out this week's podcast with a report from the Department of Energy on the future of wind power and what could happen if the renewable energy production tax credit isn't renewed. If you're ready, let's get started. As promised, I'll start off today's general section with news about the budget resolutions released by the Republican House and Senate Budget Committees last week. Let's see how they stack up. The House proposal would balance the budget in nine years and cut $5.5 trillion in projected spending through the next decade. Among other things, the House budget would lower tax rates for individuals and corporations, as well as repeal the alternative minimum tax. Meanwhile, the Senate proposal balances the budget in 10 years, reaches a $3 billion surplus in the 10th year, and cuts the deficit by $4.4 trillion more than President Obama's budget request. And, not surprisingly, both the House and Senate budgets would repeal the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. I should note, though, that the Senate proposal said it would allow Congress to, quote, extend certain expiring tax relief provisions for innovation and high-quality manufacturing jobs, end quote. No further details on that have been offered, but certainly the Research and Development Tax Credit is probably an item that, that's think that, that is contemplating. Now, the budget resolutions, also not too surprisingly, were met with mixed reviews. Proponents of the budget proposals said they would advance efforts to overhaul the tax code. On the other hand, skeptics point out that the budgets highlight potential economic growth from the tax cuts using macroeconomic or dynamic scoring. And as you know from prior podcasts, dynamic scoring is a method of scoring that takes into account the possible impact of legislation on the economy as a whole. 
And as you know, most Democrats reject macroeconomic scoring because they say it relies on too many assumptions. Another issue to keep in mind is the proposed use of reconciliation in the budgets. Reconciliation will put the legislative process on a faster track. It's, a, it's especially important in the Senate where reconciliation would only require a majority vote to pass a budget, and that's instead of the 60 votes. Essentially, reconciliation prevents a filibuster by Democrats, and it can be used to address budget issues that don't increase the deficit beyond 10 years. And reconciliation has been used about two dozen times since the early 1980s. Well, both the House and Senate budget resolutions are moving toward reconciliation. The House budget measure calls for 13 House committees to draft reconciliation measures that would cut the deficit by $1 billion in the next 10 years. The House committees would have until July 15 to submit their individual bills. In a similar way, the Senate Committees on Finance and on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, or HELP, received reconciliation instructions to reduce the deficit by $1 billion from fiscal year 2016 through 2025. And the Senate Committees would have to submit their reconciliation legislation by July 31st. Now, of course, we have to wait and see to what extent the House and the Senate budgets can be reconciled among themselves, probably through some type of conference. But if that does happen, how much of an effect do we think the budget proposals would have on tax reform? While tax policy is still determined by the tax writing committees, but a budget resolution does serve as a guiding post on various spending and revenue priorities. I should also note in terms of timing, both budget committees are expected to hold floor votes by the end of this week. And you might wonder, what's the significance of that? Well, technically, by law, the committees must report their concurrent budget resolutions by April 1st, not that that deadline hasn't been passed over before. But if they do meet that deadline, then the statute does require that both chambers pass a joint budget resolution by April 15th. As you'd suspect, we have posted both budget resolutions for you on our website. Simply go to www.novaco.com slash hot topics. Click on the tax credits and the federal budget tab and then navigate to the 2016 page. If you have any questions, please email us at cpas at novaco.com. And as always, I'll have updates for you on Twitter. My handle is at novagratic. In other news, the Internal Revenue Service is inviting recommendations from the public on items that should be included on the 2015-2016 guidance priority list. The list will identify guidance projects that the Treasury Department and the IRS intend to work on as priorities during the period from July 1 of this year through June 30, 2016. The deadline to submit comments is May 1st. Now, the Novogratz Loan Compensation Task Force Working Group, the New Market Task Force Working Group, and Renewable Energy Working Group are planning to submit comments and the working groups will consider input from both members and non-members. So if you have any suggestions, please email them to cpas at novaco.com. And I'd encourage you to write IRS priority guidance in the subject line. In local housing tax credit news, I have a clarification from the IRS that should come as welcome news to property owners. It came in the form of a program manager technical advice memorandum posted earlier this month. The question addresses circumstances that could affect the eligibility 
of manager or maintenance personnel units in a loan closing tax credit to qualify for tax credits, more particularly the costs associated with such units. The concern was that Treasury's general public use requirement, that's in Section 142-9 of the Internal Revenue Code regulations, does not allow the housing credit to apply for units that are not being used by the general public. So the question comes down to whether or not manager and maintenance personnel units are subject to this requirement. Well, in the memo, the IRS Office of Chief Counsel said that localizing units rented to resident managers or maintenance personnel are not, are not residential rental units. Rather, they're facilities reasonably required for the development. Therefore, the general public use rules do not apply to those units and as such, the cost of the units are included on eligible basis for purposes of the low-income housing tax credit. I should note, that's regardless as to whether the resident manager or personnel are charged for rent or utilities. You can find a copy of PMTA 2014-22 at www.taxcredithousing.com. I should note that the Program Manager Technical Advice Memorandum cannot be used or cited as precedent. But, it still provides useful insight into how the IRS considers manager units and maintenance personnel units for the local housing tax credit properties. Now, if you have any questions about this guidance, please contact my partner, Dirk Wallace, in our Dover, Ohio office at 330-365-5400. In other housing news, a new Senate bill could change the federal government's strategy for improving energy efficiency. HUD currently spends about $7 billion, with a B, a year on energy bills in government-sponsored properties. The bill would allow HUD to enter into pay-for-success contracts with outside entities. Those third parties would raise private capital and work with energy service companies to make energy efficiency upgrades at HUD properties. HUD would only pay investors back, plus the financial return, if HUD successfully saves a predetermined amount of money. If savings are not achieved as planned, investors take the loss. Supporters of the bill call it a win-win situation. HUD would make cost-saving updates to its multifamily properties, investors would in turn earn a small yield, and residents get to live in healthier, more energy-efficient homes. This legislation was introduced on a bipartisan basis by Senators Rob Portman, Republican from Ohio, and Gene Shaheen, a Democrat from New Hampshire. The bill text of the Energy Savings and Industrial Competitiveness Act of 2015, or S-720, is posted at www.hudresourcecenter.com. Moving on, the housing crunch continues in the United States, and this has been confirmed by yet another report, this one released last week by the National Housing Conference. According to the report, nearly one-fourth of renter households in the United States were severely cost-burdened in 2013. Let me say that again. Nearly one-fourth of renter households in the United States were severely cost-burdened in 2013. That means they spent more than half of their income on housing. Those percentages are slightly higher for working households, which the report defines as homes where members work at least 20 hours a week and where household income doesn't exceed 120% of the area median income. And the report itself went on to further focus primarily on those households. Research indicates that while it's true incomes went up during the past few years in the wake of the Great Recession, 
so did rental rates. While the cost of housing for homeowners dropped by 7.2%, the cost of rent increased 6% from 2010 to 2013. In fact, 80% of extremely low-income working households pay at least half their monthly income for housing. And the report points out that the number would be even higher if not for federal programs that assist that group. The report includes some policy suggestions, including continuing to offer existing rental subsidies and public housing units. It did name the low-income housing tax credit program as the primary source of new affordable housing, but it pointed out that the overall cap in the program limits production. Now, you can read the report at www.taxcredithousing.com. Just hover over the Resources tab and click on Reports and Research. The report's titled Housing Landscape 2015. In New Markets Tax Credit News, I'd like to talk about a recent discussion paper that advocates a permanent extension of the New Market Tax Credit Program. The discussion paper was released by the Hamilton Project. That's an economic policy initiative launched by the Brookings Institution. The report discussed expanding the New Market Tax Credit as a way of building capital, networks, and skills for both minority and female entrepreneurs. In order to increase capital for small businesses and entrepreneurs across the country, the discussion paper recommends that the New Market Tax Credit Program be made a permanent part of the tax code. Further argued that the program should be expanded from its current authorization level of $3.5 billion to $5 billion per year. The discussion paper recommended, additionally, that the CDFI fund, which as we all know administers the credit, experiment with supporting equity investments in small businesses rather than debt to real estate transactions. Doing so, the paper argues, would allow new market tax credits to better serve minority and women-owned businesses. Among other barriers, the report found that minority households and women-headed households generally have lower levels of household wealth, which can make internal investment and external borrowing more difficult. And, and, so the report argues, by encouraging investments in small businesses, it's more likely that minority and women entrepreneurs could benefit from the tax credit program. The report is called Minority and Women Entrepreneurs Building Capital, Networks, and Skills. And we've posted a copy for you at www.newmarketscredits.com. In state-level historic tax credit news, I have an update on the Georgia State Historic Tax Credit legislation that I mentioned in our podcast a few weeks ago. As you may recall, the Georgia State Historic Tax Credit equals 25% of qualified rehabilitation expenses. Well, a bill to revise the state of store tax credit was approved by the Georgia House of Representatives earlier this month. The vote, 147 to 22. It was then sent to the state Senate. The bill that was approved by the House was a little different from what was introduced in February, but it still significantly expands the per-development credit cap and institutes an annual statewide cap. The legislation proposes to increase the maximum tax credit that developers could claim under the state tax credit from $300,000 to $5 million. And it sets the statewide cap at $25 million per year. The state's House Ways and Means Committee changed the original wording of the bill. The original legislation had a special exception that would allow some developments to receive $25 million in credits, providing they meet certain job creation standards. That provision was removed. The original bill also set the statewide cap at $60 million, significantly higher 
than the $25 million in the final bill. Now, if the legislation passes the Senate and is signed into law by Governor Nathan Deal, the legislation would take effect January 1, 2016, and it would be applicable to work completed on or after January 1, 2017. The State Department of Revenue would then administer the credits on a first-come, first-served basis before the program sunsets at the end of 2021. For more information on the store tax credit, contact my partner, Mike Kressig in our St. Louis, Missouri office. He can be reached at 314-621-3471. Next, I have other state-level news, this time from the neighboring state of Alabama. A bill recently introduced as part of Governor Robert Bentley's tax increase package could reduce investments in Alabama's state store tax credit and new market tax credit programs. House Bill 142 would amend the corporate income tax law to acquire the operations of all related entities involved in a unitary business to file one corporate income tax return on a combined as opposed to consolidated basis. This practice is commonly known as combined reporting. We might be wondering what impact is that going to have on the utility of state tax credits? Well, the bill would limit the use of any tax credit to the actual entity which holds it. Now if passed, there's a danger that the legislation would dampen investor demand for historic and new market tax credits because companies that invest in these tax credits are often part of larger groups of corporations filing on a generally consolidated basis. A single investor, individual corporation within a consolidated group may not have enough current or future tax liability to use the credit. However, under the combined reporting, the utility of the credit is limited to the corporation that owns the interest. Now, to address this problem, more complicated structures would have to be used. You'd either have to break up the investment among several corporations within a consolidated group or use pass-through entities. Now, House Bill 142 has been referred to the State House of Representatives Committee on Ways and Means Education. To read the bill, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. In renewable energy news, the Energy Department released a report that says all 50 states could have utility-scale wind energy by the year 2050. Wind could provide 25% of American electricity by then as well, the Department of Energy says. This report highlights the importance of the U.S. wind portfolio. It says that 50,000 jobs were supported by wind energy investments in 2013 and that the number could rise to 600,000 by 2050. The report notes the importance of the production tax credit and how investor interest has been tempered by the expiration of the credit. The development of wind has been driven in recent years by renewable energy tax credits, and most notably the production tax credit. Without the production tax credit, the report predicts wind power will experience only incremental growth. The report is called Wind Vision, a New Era for Wind Power in the United States. You can find a copy of it at www.energytaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. When I'll discuss the resident population figures that states will use to determine their 2015 low income housing tax credit and taxes upon ceilings. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions 
are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.